Welcome to Grow and Learn and welcome to everybody new. This is Zorina, your host. Today I'm speaking to Bob De Pasquale. He's a radical generosity speaker, consultant for businesses. He helps people increase their finances using radical generosity. It seems counterintuitive, but I'm curious what Bob is going to tell us. Hi, Bob. Welcome. Zarina, hi. Thanks for having me on the show. And I love the introduction because you're right. What we do is a little counterintuitive, and I'm excited to talk about it today. Great. I'm, I'm happy to have you, Bob. Thanks for joining. So how did you, how did this all start, Bob? Let's start with a bit of a background. How did you come to this concept of radical generosity? Well, it all started when I was 18 years old. Now, I don't know about you, Zarina, but when I was 18 years old, I thought I was invincible. Like nothing could take me down. I, I, I was an invincible kid and I was going to go off to college. Now, I was an only child, grew up in a loving home, but I wanted to explore the world a little bit, see, or at least explore the country. And so I grew up in South Florida, but I wanted to go back to New York where I was, that's actually where I was born. And my parents sent me up there for college. And, and at college, I was going to get an education. I was going to be able to play American football, so play sports. And then three, I would also get to spend some time with most of my family who I didn't really know that well because they all lived in New York. And so I went up there. And I went in the in the summer, it was August, and I was there for what we call training camp. So I was there for about a month before my football season started or before school started that year. And in the first couple of days of practice, I thought I pulled a groin muscle. Now, I don't know if anyone is listening has ever pulled that muscle in your body. I think I, mean, I have. That's have you? quite painful. Yeah. Oh, it's very painful. And it's and you can't move. You can't stand or sit up or twist without you don't realize how much you use your groin muscle. You think maybe it's just this little muscle, but it's very, very painful and it's hard to it's hard to move around. So um, I couldn't certainly couldn't run down a foot, you know, a sports field on, you know, no less do anything else. And so the trainers were having me do this rehabilitation exercise. It was the silliest exercise. I would sit on a stool that had three wheels on it and I would have to shimmy across the training room. And it was really painful to try to do this. And it was kind of embarrassing. I was a freshman. I was a young kid, 18 years old, trying to prove myself to all my coaches and teammates and other people. And I mean, it just was not working. I wasn't getting any better. And one day the trainer stands up on this box in the middle of the training room. And this is how he would have to get people's attention because it would be so loud in there at like six o'clock, 5.30 in the morning on a training camp day. And he screamed across the room and he said, Bobby, that's what they called me at the time. Mm -hmm. Bobby, quit doing this exercise. You have to get back out on the field, quit being a weakling. And it was such a shot to my ego. I, I thought I was an 18 year old who thought he would, could just take on the world. And that was... It made me feel like such a loser. So uh, I, I ended up meeting with him a little bit later and said, listen, Rick, um, you know, this is not getting any better. Like this is, I need you to help me do something else. Like you said, I, I do want to be on the field, but you're not helping me get any better. So he said, well, you know what? I'm going to send you to a doctor. So he sent me to a doctor and throughout the next couple of weeks, I was driving all around New York by myself. Now I'm 18 years old. So technically I'm an adult. 
So I was going to all these doctor's appointments and I had MRIs, CAT scans, ultrasound, sonogram. I had every test in the book that you might think you could have for this type of injury. And so finally, I had one more appointment and this was the day that my parents were supposed to come up to New York for my first ever college football game. Now we knew I wasn't gonna be playing in the game, which was a couple days later, but they were coming up on a Thursday. So I had this doctor's appointment that morning and I expected to be in this appointment for like two hours. These appointments would take forever. I had to fill out all this paperwork. They were really, really long appointments by the time I got everything done. So I went to the appointment and the moment I walked in the office, I mean, within like a minute or two, they sent me back. They already called my name and said, come into the room. So the lady takes me into the room and within 30 seconds, the doctor walks in the room and I was like, wow, this is like happening really fast. I'm, I'm used to being being here for hours. He, he sits down at the desk, he looks me straight in the eye and he said, Bob, you have cancer. And I said, whoa, what? I mean, I didn't even know what to think. I was like, I have cancer. I'm 18 years old. I'm invincible. How could I possibly have an illness like this? And I mean, I just remember my jaw hitting the desk. I was so, I was so mm. confused. And the only thing I can, else, other thing I can remember him saying was, I know you're probably in shock. Don't worry about it. We're going to hook you up with an oncologist. You're free to go. And I thought to myself, I don't even know what an oncologist is. Yeah. And I was just in shock. And I walked out of the room and I walked out of the building. And I kid you not, it was like divine timing. The moment I walked out of the building, my phone rang and it was my mom. And she says, hey, uh, wow, I, I didn't expect to get you. I just, I was going to leave a message, but we landed and we're on our way to your uncle's house. How did the appointment go? And Zarina, I was, I had to tell her what the doctor said. So I said, uh, mom, so about that appointment, and I told her what the doctor said, and it was almost as if she was screaming, but it was dead silent on the other end of the phone. Like I could just mm -hmm. feel her pain. And the only thing I could hear was my dad, who was also in the car with her. I could hear him yelling, Susan, Susan, that's my mom's name. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Like he knew something was wrong too. So we, we met back at my uncle's house where they were going to be staying. And I hadn't seen my parents in a, in a month now. I'd never been a home away from home that long. And we said hello to each other. We, I gave them a big hug. We shed some tears. We said some prayers. And we kind of all looked at each other like, what's going on? So uh, a couple of days passed. And now it's Saturday, which was when I was supposed to be playing in my first game. Now I wasn't playing in the game, but we were all there. And my uncle's best friend came over his house and his name was Tim and we didn't know him because we were, we were living in Florida and he was, they were in New York, but Tim comes over, says hi to my aunt, and uncle and introduces himself to us. And he walks over to my parents and he pulls his keys out of his pocket. And he, it, it seemed like he shoved them in my parents' face. It was so aggressive, but he was like, here, Bob and Susan, I can't imagine what you're going through take my keys and you can have my car for as long as you need it to help with your son. And we were looking at each other like, what? And I thought to myself, 
wow, that's the most generous thing that someone's ever done for my family. And Tim was there for maybe 15 minutes and he ended up leaving. He just, he said goodbye, he said goodbye to my aunt and uncle and, and he left, he was gone. I'm like, wow, he just basically just gave us his car. That's incredible. So as I mentioned, the doctor told me that they would get me in touch with an oncologist, which is the doctor of cancer. And the, the oncologist had recommended he didn't know how he was going to treat me for the can for for my cancer, which by the way turned out to be testicular cancer. It, that so we thought it was a groin injury, but it had spread into my abdomen. So we had a pretty aggressive form of cancer, and so the doctor was trying to figure that out. But he said, "Don't drop out of your classes because I want you to stay in New York to get treated, so I can treat you. But I don't want you to drop out of your classes." So I ended up going to class the next Monday and Tuesday. And so I came out of my second ever college class on Tuesday morning, and I'll never forget this. I went to the cafeteria and I was grabbing something to eat. I was eating like a breakfast burrito or something, nothing, nothing fancy. And I'm sitting and I'm watching TV. Now it's like an old school television that's hanging from a bracket and on the ceiling and the wall. It's like an eight inch tube television, you know, like those older TVs. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching the news. Now, I don't know the news station because I'm a kid. I don't, first of all, I don't even watch the news. And second of all, I'm not from New York, so I wouldn't know what the station are. But it's, it's the news is on. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, a plane crashes into one of the buildings, a, a big tower there in New York City. And I was like, wow, that's a horrible accident. And so I called my dad and said, hey, dad, are you watching the news? He was back at my uncle's house. And he's like, yeah, I'm watching. It looks like a plane just hit the one of the Twin Towers. And we were talking for maybe not even a minute. And all of a sudden, bam, a second plane hit one of the other towers there in the World Trade Center in Manhattan. And that was the September 11th terrorist attacks. And it was all happening live. And my dad was like, well, that's not an accident, son. You should better, you better get back to your uncle's house. So I hopped in the car and I... That breakfast burrito is probably still sitting there. I didn't finish it. I just left. And it was typically a 15-minute drive from my school to where my uncle lived. But Zarina, it took me nine hours to make oh, this. Wow. And I'm now I subsequently have a master's degree in broadcast journalism. I actually worked in AM radio <laughs> for a for a short period of time. But I will never, ever, ever listen to nine straight hours of AM radio again. And I'm inching down the highway in incredible traffic, burning towers in the distance, listening to this whole thing on the radio while I'm in New York. I mean, it was just incredible. And I ended up running out of gas in my uncle's neighborhood. So thankfully, I made it off the highway. I can't imagine if I was on the highway mm -hmm. and ran out of gas. But I made it to my uncle's neighborhood. And we had to push my car into his driveway. And my aunt was hysterical. We got the car in the driveway. My aunt was flipping out because my uncle was supposed to fly home to New York. He was on business the night before in Denver. And so finally at like maybe eight o'clock at night, I'm guessing, my uncle calls and he's like, hey, I'm okay. I know you guys are probably panicking, but the phones have been out. Uh, I was supposed to fly out this morning, but my flight was grounded because because of what happened, I, I heard about it, but I'm okay. Just wanted to let you all know, I'll try to catch a flight tomorrow. And so we were all relieved, but my aunt was ready to hang up the phone 
And my uncle was like, no, 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 wait, I'm sorry, I got to tell you one more thing. So if you remember my Tim, my friend Tim, who you all met on Saturday, he was in the towers this morning and he died. And we were like, oh, wow. Here's this guy that we just met, did the most radically generous thing for us we could ever think of. And he ended up losing his life in the towers. Like, why did he deserve that? And it turns out that Tim was known for being a generous guy. He worked for a firm called Kenner Fitzgerald. They're an investment firm, investment bank there in the city and their, their offices. They, they lost hundreds of people that morning. If you YouTube the president of, the, of Kenner Fitzgerald at the time, he was the only one who just happened to not be in the office that morning. I think he was taking his kid to school, something that it wasn't normal. And he ended up surviving, but they lost everyone. And they would donate office space to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis, which is a disease my cousin has. So Tim and, and his employer, Kenneth Fitzgerald, were just known for being generous people. And the only person who would typically be in the office for the foundation that early actually was stuck in the subway bowl underneath the towers. She was also uncharacteristically late. And she, she escaped. And the stories that she can tell are just amazing. But... Um, somehow, for some reason, she survived. And it always makes me think, you know, we never know when our last opportunity is on earth to do something. Tim didn't survive, and Tammy did. But Tim was known for saying this one thing that I heard, and he would say, he would put a twist on that, we never know when our last chance is. He would say, we never know when our last opportunity to be generous is, which is mm -hmm. really a strong statement. And it turns out, that my family and myself, we were Tim's last chance to be generous and he took advantage of it. So you ask the question, how did this all start? Well, that short period of time, just that couple day period in my life convinced me that generosity is an important part of our life. And I dedicated, I told myself at that point, I'm gonna dedicate time and effort and, and for the rest of my life to make sure that generosity is promoted. Fascinating story. And you got healed a few months later is what I read also about you? Yes. So my oncologist, who, who happened to be the father of one of my cousin's friends, he wasn't supposed to treat me. Now you talk about another act of generosity. His practice was booked. He didn't treat my type of cancer. It wasn't, if it wasn't for his willingness to take me in, and basically make a whole room out of a out of a storage space in his office to treat me. Uh, I don't know what would have happened, but yes, I went through a very uh, pretty aggressive uh, chemo regimen over a three or four month period, and uh, it was physically challenging, like you know most would assume. And I uh, I had CAT scans and, and tests later that in that December, and they came out clean, and so. The cancer was extremely aggressive, my oncologist told me, but it was also highly curable based on what he could come up with. And so, yeah, I was uh, I was healed. Now, it took him 10 years of repeated scans and checking and making sure before he actually ever said that I'm healed or cured. Um, mm -hmm. But it took about four months and the cancer was gone. Okay. Well, that's great news after such mm -hmm. a traumatic experience and a great learning. 
Absolutely. But uh, a good turnaround. I also remember, I recall this moment very well. I was in the Netherlands at that time and I had just begun studying as well. And mm. uh, I had just spent a few days in the Netherlands and they were showing it live as well. So I clearly remember, but this is one of these moments in life where I think the whole humanity was watching and they can remember very clearly where everybody's at. That, that's the interesting thing about it. There are moments in life where everybody knows what they were doing at this very time when, when this event happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And this is certainly one of those. And people ask me, you know, what would you change about your life? Or, or you know, if you could adjust something or do you have regrets? And I would never wish chemotherapy and that period of time on anyone. Obviously, you know, the, the thousands of people that lost their lives in the terrorist attacks, I would never want that to happen again. But the lessons that I learned, and you mentioned uh, the learning experience, the lessons that I learned from that period of time were just indelible. They'll never leave my brain. And not a day goes by. And this is not an exaggeration at all. Not a single day goes by in my life where I don't think about that period of time at least once. And some days I think about it more and it's deeper, it's more emotional, especially around the times at the anniversary in September. And um, But even on a random day, I'll, it'll at least pop into my mind for at least a short moment. So I will never forget that period of time. And so this evolved, this learning evolved, and now you're applying radical um, generosity to your business and you're also um, consulting companies, businesses to be more profitable. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So I speak with organizations about a radically generous culture. And some people talk about or assume that the word radical means bad or risky. And if you if you look up the definition of, of radical, there's a couple different ways you can define it. But in my mind and what I've deduced from, you know, reading different definitions and understanding how different people think of it, is it really just means is, is a unique way of thinking, different than the average person or that most people would think. And so what I found is that the organizations that are radically generous, generous in a way that, that a lot of people wouldn't be, kind of like Tim O'Brien was for me and my family. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would have felt bad for me being having contracted cancer and having to go through all of that. And they would have tried to do something nice for me. Like a lot of the neighbors in my uncle's neighborhood brought over food or did things for me or sent me notes, told me they were praying for me. But only one person thought radically enough to just give us his car, mm -hmm. right? And so I have found that the organizations that have a culture that includes radical generosity where the, where the employees do things for each other, where the company does things for its customers that are unexpected, those are the companies that thrive the most. And I say radical generosity leads to radical growth. When you do things unexpectedly in a nice and compassionate, kind way for other people, you'll find that your company will grow in ways that you never expected. Okay, so I have encountered this in some business models, such as, uh, I can't remember the name of the company at the moment, but the mm -hmm. one that, that sells a pair of shoes and it donates the same pair of shoes to a country in Africa. I can't remember which, but this was like a, mm -hmm. a completely new business model um, in the, um, yes. it related to, to generosity. And, it, and, and they did very well because people are clearly willing to give and to donate. Mm -hmm. um, so, but can you share maybe some examples of 
what you've observed and what you've advised companies to adopt in terms of radical generosity, how it's turned out? Sure, absolutely. So um, I, I, I want to tell you a quick story or give you an explanation of how I realized this too, because it's not something that I just found. I mean, I went through that period of time when I was 18 and it, it, like I said, it took me four or five months to be physically healed. It probably took me six months to mentally get over and just get myself back in, in, in college and university mode, but it took years for me to get over those emotions. Mm. And once I got over those emotions, I started recognizing these things in my life. Like I knew what Tim did for us at that time was super generous, but I didn't realize the true impact other than I was, I had a car to drive around, but that was, it was way more than that, but it took me years to figure this out. And then I had this understanding and, and I was more aware of generosity in my life. And so I mentioned I had a master's degree in broadcast journalism. And I was working in radio. Well, the reason why I left radio is because I was recruited into the financial industry and I put the I put the guy off who was trying to recruit me for quite a while, but I ended up calling him back because in the radio conglomerate that I was working for at the time was doing some questionable things with the way that they were treating their customers. Like they weren't being generous at all. In fact, they were being quite nefarious. And in some cases, for what I felt was like immoral practices with their money and it just wasn't good. And so mm -hmm. the guy who recruited me Talk to me about the value of good financial advice and and making good decisions and helping people and, and being stand up and acting with integrity. And so he sold me on it and I took the job. And my thought was this. I was like, I can only imagine if there's fraud and, and questionable practices going on in the radio industry, I can only imagine what's going on in the financial world. In other words, there must be some really bad practices going on there, some really bad people. And so that's why I took the job. But I was pleasantly surprised when I started working in the industry. I realized that there's a lot of people that are actually generous people. There's a lot of families and businesses that want to do good with their money. And other, it's not just the money either. It could be either resources, intellectual property, products, whatever. There's a lot of people and organizations that want to be generous. But there's a problem. The problem is that the world and all the messages that we get these days tell us that we're not doing good enough, that we need a new product, we need a new service to help us do better. We need a, if you're a business, you need a, you need a software to help you manage your sales better, or you need to manage your company or your process or your HR. If you're an individual, you need a self-help book to help you be better because you're not maximizing your potential because you're not good enough. And there's all of these messages that tell us we're not good enough. And the overwhelming amount of people that I counseled thousands over the years, thousands of families, a lot of them wanted to be generous, but they felt that they weren't capable. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the money. They just, they they couldn't put it all together. And it was just really, really sad to me that people want to be generous, but they can't. So you asked, what are some things that families can do or companies can do uh, or examples? And so what I found is that when I speak with the, when I spoke with business owners, entrepreneurial type of people that own companies, the ones that had the most generous cultures are the ones that had the, the best growth, even in the worst times, whether it was in 2008, uh, you know, the, with the Great Recession, or it was a debt ceiling issue three or four years after that, or even talking about the last couple of years with what's going on. The companies that maintain their generous culture are the ones that do the best. So things like this. So one of the, one of the most popular things 
out there now, and it's it's a great tool, is to use instead of uh, instead of having team building exercises where you go out to dinner or golfing together, do a service project type of thing instead. Get people mm-hmm. together to do service for somebody else. Oh, and there's I've something powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something powerful about doing something for other people with people. So it's one thing to for me by myself to go volunteer and do something. Sure, it's great. And I would always encourage people to do that. But it's another thing for me to go with another group of people and some of my best friends in the world. In fact, all of my best friends in the world, including my wife, are all people that I've met in service to other people, doing things that are somewhat challenging outside of your comfort zone, but doing it with a group of people. So the first thing I always recommend to organizations, if you're already doing team building exercises, instead of going to the local restaurant or to race go-karts together or to the golf course, go do a service project. Go do a beach cleanup if you live near the beach. Go volunteer at a food pantry if you live in if you're in a city and you're not surrounded by other opportunities. Or, or I might I learned this from my dentist. Now that my dentist was not a client of mine, not anyone that I you know <clears throat> I only had a business relationship with him uh, for his business. And I walked into their office once, and they had this book of this trip that they went on as an entire office. And I started asking them questions about that day, and that's what they did too. I mean, this is a small dentist office, but they went on this trip together, and it was overseas. So he paid for the whole thing. And he's like, this is the best investment I ever made in my business. Forget new technology and new dental things and chairs and whatever. The best investment I ever made in my business was take my entire office overseas. And and it proved, and I asked a couple of the other employees there and they loved it. So those are, that's probably like the most extreme or example, like big type of thing, but it doesn't always have to be that big, Zarina. It can be little things. And so I think the reason why the companies that I mentioned grow the most is because the one employee doesn't feel like they have to take down the person in the cubicle next to them to be successful. So it's good to have competition and to motivate your employees. But what if you encourage them to collaborate with each other and be generous with their time and resources? So Mm -hmm. if employee A wants to help employee B and says, you know what, I'm willing to put down what I'm working on and dedicate some of my working hours to help someone else. The collaborative effort inside a company is extremely powerful. And people see that it retains employees more. It it's more it, it can attract better talent because what a benefit if you know that you're going to go to work and the people around you are going to support you. Uh, it also attracts better customers. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the company with the shoes as well. Uh, I can't, I, it's, the, their name is slipping my mind too, but there's also other companies like Patagonia and other organizations that give back. Customers want to be involved with that. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that the action of generosity immediately makes your company better, right? It can make people feel good, but what it really is, is it's the culture and it's the long-term effects of that. If I go to work for three weeks and I enjoy the, the majority of my work, I'm more likely to come in more energized. I'm more likely to tell my friends, hey, I love working for my company. I'm more likely to smile when I'm addressing my customers, not when they call on the phone and I'm like having a bad day at work and I don't treat them well. So it's a compounding effect that a generous mindset really helps a company grow. Mm. I have worked, uh, Bob, for companies that were spending millions 
in the, in the hundreds of millions in marketing, including sponsorships for all kinds of causes. And um, it, it creates a lot of publicity, but in the end, um, you know, they're not known for generosity. Everybody knows that that's pure marketing. So how, how would you advise a company to uh, make the distinction between sponsoring some cause and being seen as generous? Oh, I, I love this question. This is a powerful one. So yes, there are a lot of organizations out there who have a line item in their budget, whether it's yeah. for a tax break or, or for recognition, they donate to a cause. And there's also a lot of companies that take it a little, uh, maybe one step further, and they advertise it, and they pay for ads, and they talk about it. None of these yeah. things are bad. I would always encourage companies to do this, but the key is what you just said. How do we become known for being this organization? And I think the way that you do that is from the recognizable people in an organization being educated on the impact that they're trying to make, right? So if your company does donate $100 million to a cause or $100,000 or even $1,000 if you're a smaller company, the leadership and the public figures of that organization need to know what the cause is. Maybe even they participated in themselves physically. They need to be able to describe it, understand it. It's got to be part of your ethos and your culture. You have to want to support that cause, not just support it because you're supposed to. And I think one of the most powerful things here is get the other people involved in your organization, involved in the decision-making process for these things. Don't just have one person say, hey, you're in charge of this. Just figure out who we're going to donate to and then stroke the check. Have a company-wide survey. Depending on how big your company is, you can actually have a meeting about it. Nowadays, you can do a Zoom meeting like we're doing, and you can have a whole information session. You can mm -hmm. solicit feedback from people, and you can get other people involved so that the company, it becomes part of the company's culture. And then what you do also is you also invite people that, that you're supporting, if possible, that invite them to your organization so that they know that what you do, that they know what you do. And if you have pictures or videos or stuff on your website, there should be all kinds of resources. It should be an absolute no brainer that your company supports a specific cause. And there should be some kind of partnership there. And it should be known that this partnership benefits you and it also benefits the company, uh, benefits the, the, the organization or the cause that you're supporting. I think we're foolish to assume, or excuse me, maybe not to assume, but foolish to have a one-sided relationship. Like it shouldn't be, we're the big, mighty, for-profit, successful company, and we're the savior of this other organization. And that's, in my opinion, is the, is the wrong image. In fact, I think the, the what you can actually receive back from supporting a cause might even be more than what you can give. And I've learned that on a personal level on some of my own trips and, and causes that I've supported. I get so much more out of it. And the same applies here for a company. So whether you're the, the janitor at a company or the CEO, you should know about this cause and you should be willing to share about it and understand how the, or what the impact is that your company is making. And finally, the last thing that I'll mention, well, I, I'm not the last thing, but one other thing that I want to mention on the subject is writing, having these things documented is extremely powerful. And what, so whether you're a customer or a potential employee, or even a current employee, if you uh, if you know there's a place where this stuff is, like, like I said, on the website, or maybe it's uh, actual forms and contracts and documents, if it's written down, like if it's clear that your company supports a cause, 
or has some kind of alternate mission, it's really, really powerful. It makes you really feel like there's something else going on there rather than just the bottom line. So make sure this stuff is documented too. Don't just say it, put it in words so that when people want to know about it, they can find it. And it looks, and it lo I mean, I hate to say it, but perception is reality, right? So if they perceive based on what you have and your resources, that this is a meaningful cause to you, then they'll believe it and they'll be much more likely to do business with you. Mm -hmm. I am uh, coming from a background. I mean, apart from the business that I have now, I'm coming from a background, a very uh, dinosaur type uh, corporation. So I, I know that it's pretty hard to turn around the corporate culture uh, with all kinds of initiatives. I've observed them. I have followed them. I've participated in them. I know that it's really, really hard to turn around corporate culture. Um, it is. It's not impossible, it but it's hard. Uh, and especially, uh, especially because not only because of short-term financial thinking, what we're all trained to, or what business people are trained to focus on, uh, but also because of the economic situation currently impending. There's a lot of tension in businesses, in employees. Uh, there are even reports of people at the moment experiencing uh, depression and burnout because of fear they're going to lose their jobs. So in this type of an environment where there's even more uncertainty than ever, do you have any, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, do you have any idea how this can be implemented for an increased benefit, maybe for an increased security? Does this still apply in such an environment? Well, you mentioned how it's hard to change a company culture, and that's, that's absolutely true. And one thing I talk about a lot of, a lot of the time is that generosity is not easy. It's not, it's not easy to do the things that are unexpected. And it takes a certain level of generosity to do what everyone else is doing. If everyone's giving to a cause or if someone's gravely ill in your circle of friends and everyone else is bringing their family a meal or providing them some money, you know, whatever it is, like that's the easy stuff. But being generous and a generous culture is can be very, very challenging, especially when there's other stakes on the line. Mm -hmm. And so I always recommend that companies start simple, whether we're in economic crisis or even if, even if things are going great. And in fact, I think in some cases, getting back to basics in, in the toughest of times can be the most powerful impetus for change in an organization. Because if things are going really well and it's easy to donate a bunch of money, you'd be surprised how selfish and money hungry and greedy an organization can get you know they'll they'll give they'll probably give more away but it's not really becoming part of their culture because things are going so well so they just figure out oh, well we're just going to keep making money and then we'll just donate some but there's no connection being made there in some of the most challenging times you really got to go back to basics maybe you can't afford it, whether you're an individual or a company to give a large chunk of money if business is not going as well but what you can do is concentrate on the things that you can control, the internal things that your company does, right? It's not, you know, it's always about inputs over outputs, in my opinion. Um, it, whether you're in, in sales or HR, you're in development or technology, you can be helpful and have a mindset of generosity with the people that you work with. And if you're a leader in an organization, you've got to make sure that your people are on the same page. And you've got, and like I said, go back to basics, the simplest tasks, make sure everyone seems supported. 
Make sure everyone feels like they're contributing to what the company is doing, right? And it, it, it's a simple level. It's not about celebrating the biggest events. It's not about making one person feel like, you know, they're the savior of the organization and everyone else failed or lost the sales contest. It's more about celebrating collaboration and helping each other. One of the things that I I was reading, I don't know, maybe a couple, couple of weeks ago, and uh, probably more like a couple of months ago now. And when Steve Jobs uh, ended up purchasing Pixar, so this is early in, you know, pretty early in Steve Jobs' career, but I think at this point he had, uh, he may have left Apple for the, that one time before he came back, but he, they, they purchased Pixar and they were moving to this big building. It was, it was going to be in a, it was like a, I think it was a warehouse. It was some kind of over, uh, it was a, it was an abandoned building essentially. And they bought it and they were going to move it. And when they were talking about how they were going to restructure things, he started making all these radical changes to how the building looked. And what he did was, is he moved all the collaborative and, well, not even necessarily collaborative, but all of the uh, things that were in the building in the old office that were part, like where people would communicate with each other a lot. He moved all of those things to the center of the building so that people would be around each other more. So it typically what they, or what they had expected him to do was put all like people's offices and their development space and the technology in the middle, because that was their Pixar, their uh, innovative technology company. And we're going to do animations in the most high tech ways. He said, no, we're going to put all that stuff on the X, you know, on the outside of the building, not outside the building, but on the edges of the building. And in the middle of the building, we're going to put the mail room, the cafeteria, all the meeting rooms, uh, you know, uh, the gift shop, all the places where people would spend time and do like what you might call water cooler talk. And this may not apply so much now because we have this work from home remote environment, but he put all the things in the middle that he felt like people would spend the most time together. And he encouraged them to, to, to spend that time. Only go to your office on the outside, you know, on the, on the extended area of the building to work when you have to work. And it's important work, but we want you to spend time with each other. And he found that the collaborative the people who are the most collaborative were the most joyful and the most successful in their tasks. So if all else fails, what I would tell a leader or a business person or an entrepreneur is to make sure that your company is spending time together with whatever they do. Make sure that that's prioritized, that collaboration and communication is, is important. Because I think you develop relationships and you kind of, you know, when you spend a lot of time with someone, unless they're a complete jerk, which you could argue that you probably shouldn't have hired the person if they're the, if they are. But if you're spending a lot of time in communicating with someone, you're going to learn about what's going on in their life, what what their projects are at work. You're going to be rooting for them, and you're going to want to help them. And you have really, it's it's almost like you have no choice but to want to be collaborative and generous with your time and resources for them. So foster a, uh, a generous culture by bringing people together. Right? Have them spend less time alone grinding away at the computer and more time collaborating and just communicating with each other. Even if it's just for lunch, you know, encourage them, maybe bring in lunch. Oh, that's a simple one. Just say, hey guys, from one o'clock to 2 p.m., we're all taking lunch hour. Maybe a couple of people need to be answering the phones, but everyone else, we're gonna sit down and we're just, we're not gonna talk about work. We're just gonna eat lunch together. And I think you'd be surprised how much that can be helpful. That makes a lot of sense. I actually really, um, I can see how doing projects together for, an outside cause 
would do great even in such circumstances with people when companies would start cutting their budgets for uh, mm -hmm. off-site events, team buildings, and so on. Um, I even recall um, a company that I used to work for long ago. I think they did some uh, reforestation projects, which was pretty cool. Like the employees would did a reforestation project. Yeah, I, I went to um, a an event once with a, with a former company that I worked for, and it was some kind of training. We were learning about something, and that was like the first half or the first day or the first half of the day. I don't remember. And then the second half of it was this team building exercise. And I can only imagine how much money the company spent on this. And sure, we had fun. It was a good time. Uh, you know, and I, so I, I don't want to say it was a waste, but they spent a lot of money on that. It would have been way cheaper if they would have bought us some sandwiches and we would have driven over to some cause and just volunteered our time. Like, mm -hmm. so believe it or not, when when money is tight for an organization, it's probably even easier to do some kind mm. of service project outside of the four walls of your company uh, to do that. I mean, you can go somewhere. It doesn't cost you any money. It just costs you the time, but you yeah. can go support a cause. I mean, how cool is that? That, that Everyone Super benefits cool. in that scenario, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Awesome. Tell us about your book. You can see it behind you, Personal yeah. Finance. Yeah. What is yeah, it about? Absolutely. Would love to talk about the book. So mm -hmm. I believe that everyone has experiences, gifts, and skills to help make the world a better place. And so people ask me, you know, why did you write the book or when did you think about it? And I said, I never really considered myself to be an author. I, I was not, in, I didn't have a big intention of writing a book. I do know that my previous employer in the financial space, it was very restrictive on what we were allowed to do from a media perspective, just for compliance reasons. And so when my business partner and I, who was my colleague at the time, left our company, I suddenly had this availability to communicate with more people. Um, but when we were starting this company and I realized, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that I can no longer serve in that role. We're not going to be able to, to serve as many families, but there's still some messages out there that I want to help people with. So I did write the book about social media ads and technology affecting our money decisions. And so it, it really was my opportunity to continue to provide advice and some counseling, uh, but on some more progressive subjects. And now I could could offer it in book form because I can no longer I, I no longer have the availability and professional time to be able to dedicate to so many people. So it was really my it it was a bit of my feeling bad about not being able to speak with as many people. Uh, but I wanted to share that information. So. If you're someone who likes technology and you find yourself using your phone and computer and apps, and but you also realize that sometimes it can be very, very distracting and it can be used, it can be a negative tool. Uh, the book is really all about just about every topic in personal finance you could think of and how to use technology for good in that fashion, whether that's budgeting or investing or insurance, or if you're into cryptocurrency, there's a chapter on that. Uh, so I wanted to talk about all of those things. And I thought this was my opportunity to use my experiences, gifts, and skills uh, to help benefit other people. And uh, it, it, it is a book. It is for sale. So I'm not going to say it's, uh, you know, my charitable intent, or I'm not going to claim that it's, it's my biggest generosity project. But I do feel like it was my chance to offer some information um, that I, well, I, I also spent a lot of time researching technology and psychology for it. But um, that's what the book's about. So if you're if you're looking for information about that and you find technology and finance to be interesting, it's, it's probably a good text for you. Well, where can people get this book? 
it's on uh, it's on Amazon, Ingram Spark, Kobo. Uh, it's the audio book just released, so now you can get it in ebook, soft cover, hard cover, audio. They're all available. The, probably the easiest is just to search for it, um, or if you go to Amazon, you can put in my name or the title, "Personal Finance in a Public World." And so, yeah, if if, uh, if anyone wants to talk about it or has questions, by all means, you can contact me as well. I love talking about the subject. Mm-hmm. So. After all of these experiences, realizations, learnings, where are you going next? What do you want to achieve from now on? Well, someone said I should strike while I'm hot and write another book. And I said, I don't know if I have another one in me right away. Maybe someday uh, if the plan. So, um, I, you know, I continue to speak with organizations. And, I, you know, I, I really want to build out and make generosity a more powerful and understood force in the world. Uh, we didn't get too much into the psychological and scientific evidence of generosity. Uh, but I, I want to continue to teach people about that. It's really fascinating. So um, hopefully my my speaking opportunities continue to grow. And then my company, I mean, I, I did leave the my employer. I, I mentioned the person who recruited me. I worked at that organization for almost 13 years. And then people were asking us to help counsel them even deeper on their philanthropic efforts. And so we left the firm and started our own. We loved working there, uh, but we just knew we wanted to dedicate more time to this stuff. So we still provide uh, top-notch financial management advice, you know, related to all those topics that you might think are important. But we have an additional layer layer of service now, where uh, we pretty much manage its concierge-level financial management for people, and uh, we have a process called the Generous Wealth Journey, where we help take families through a process to help them figure out how they can use their time, their money, and their talents uh, to to benefit others. And so we do the technical planning, the tax work, and the legal and estate planning and those sort of things. Uh, but we really want to get involved with families and partner with them to help them make a difference in the world. So if you are thinking about being more generous or you consider yourself a generous person and need help building out that plan uh, and managing your, your resources, we, we can do that for you. So the next couple of years, we'll be continuing to build those two things speaking with companies and helping families be more generous. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have you back uh, talking about the neuroscience and you know psychology of uh, radical generosity. I'm curious about this subject as well. So I'd love to have you back if you find the time in the coming months. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would love to talk about it. I, it's such a fascinating concept. I'll give you a little teaser. Um, it's, it's a lot more powerful generosity from a third person perspective than we think of you know like we normally think that if i give you a gift that you and i are going to both be happy right because you got a gift and i felt good giving it to you Mm -hmm. but what's underrated or underestimated in our society and i think this might actually go back to why it's so powerful for organizations is the third party onlooker to a generous act also feels Mm -hmm. really good as a spillover effect or yeah so like if you're a business owner out there and you know one of your employees does something great nice for another employee that right there is might be your biggest weapon or ammo, weapon maybe not the right word uh, but that might be your biggest proof to the rest of your employees of why they should be generous so you should mm-hmm. celebrate that right so yeah sure celebrate the salesman who made the biggest sale or made the most money this month but celebrate more the person who helps someone else make a sale that's mm-hmm. powerful Thank you so much, Bob. Where can people find you? What is your website called? 
So bobdpasquale.com, you'll find everything about me there, my speaking engagements, and then initiateimpact.com is my company if you're looking for financial services. I'll put the links below so people will have them. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Wishing you all the best. Good luck in changing companies' culture, helping families with it's this. I don't know. It's, it's not a concept, but it's an approach. Yep. Thanks. Thank Thanks, Serena. I, I really appreciate the time and uh, love what you're doing on the show, helping people live and learn. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Grow and Learn. We hope that you found our podcast informative, engaging, and inspiring. Our mission is to help you keep growing and learning, and we hope that our conversations and insights have provided you with practical advice and useful perspectives. If you're looking for personalized support and guidance to help you achieve your personal or professional growth objectives, I offer a range of services to help. As a trusted management partner and mentor, I work with businesses in the process of transformation, looking for new streams of business, as well as M&A. With an extensive professional network of experts and mentors, I can bring on board the right person or team based on the specific needs of the company I'm working with. To learn more about the services I offer and how I can help you achieve your goals, visit my website at growandlearn.org. You can also reach out to me via email or social media. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Grow and Learn, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback is important to us and it helps us to continue to create content that is relevant and valuable to our listeners. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to sharing more insights and perspectives with you in the future.